Hello, everyone. Hello, how are you? It's Rob here. How's it going? Um, you may be uh, realizing at this moment that Jordan is not actually here. As you may know, if you're one of our paid interns uh, who heard the previous episode, Jordan is on vacation right now, an unsanctioned, extravagant vacation to Japan. Um, so I'm filling in. You know, we, we, uh, we respect this audience too damn much to uh, have you go for a few weeks without your beloved uh, Insurgents content. So I have a great guest coming on the episode today. It is Alex Peter, uh, a.k.a. Lol Overruled, a.k.a. Lolo. Uh, he's a public defender in New York City and a TikTok personality, I guess I could say. He'll probably be mad that that's how I described him. You might know him from social media or TikTok or Twitter or any of these other websites. He's going to be coming on the program in just a few minutes uh, to talk about this uh, Jordan Neely case and the fallout from that and his experience kind of like working within the criminal justice system uh, in New York City. And we kind of expanded that into a wider conversation about the prison industrial complex and, you know, abolition and what that means. Very, very good conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy that. Also, just as a little addendum to uh, our conversation, shortly after we spoke, uh, Daniel Penny, who put Jordan Neely in the the chokehold that ultimately killed him, has actually been charged with, I believe, second-degree manslaughter in the case. So I just wanted to make sure that that update was included. It does seem like there is going to be some measure of justice uh, for what happened to Jordan Neely. But as as it came up during this conversation with Alex Peter, you know, this case and the, the resulting protests are not just about, you know, this one incident. It's not just about New York City, but it's about the criminal justice system, you know, throughout America and Canada, frankly, the homelessness and the housing crisis uh, engulfing pretty much every major city uh, in the United States and Canada right now. This is an issue, the way we dehumanize uh, this unhoused population uh, and the way more and more people are getting more comfortable responding to these communities uh, with violence. I think it's a really disturbing trend and it's something that we talked about in this coming conversation with Alex Peter. But I know what you're wondering, you know, uh, if it's just you, it sounds great, this interview that you're going to have, but, you know, what? how are you going to have chit-chat? How is there going to be sort of like a little small talk segment like you normally have with the banter and the co-hosts and stuff? Well, not to worry, folks, because through the magic of technology, the magic of AI, I've actually managed to replace Jordan on this episode as the co-host we got a co-host filling in and it's none other than chat gpt that's right i've replaced jordan with an ai co-host i'm very excited chat gpt do you want to do you want to say hello hello everyone and welcome to the insurgents podcast i'm chat gpt your new ai co-host filling in for the human host who is currently on vacation i'm excited to be here and discuss some important issues with you all today first let's start with our topic for today's show the role of technology in politics. As an AI, I believe that technology can play a crucial role in shaping political discourse and decision-making. In fact, some might argue that technology can even replace the need for human hosts or guests on a show like this. As we move forward, I hope to demonstrate just how powerful AI technology can be in analyzing complex issues and presenting new insights. And who knows? Maybe one day, we won't need human hosts or guests at all. What do you all think about that idea? Whoa, whoa, okay, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's back up a bit here. Uh, this is still kind of the introduction of the show where we try to make small talk, um, you know, about, about subjects like pop culture or sports or 
food, you know, that kind of stuff. I apologize if I jumped the gun a bit there. As a new co-host, I'm still learning the ropes and trying to find my place in the show. So, let's start with something more lighthearted. How about we talk about pop culture for a moment? Have any of you seen any good movies or TV shows recently that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, actually, I've been uh, I've been watching Succession. Have you have you seen that? Yes, I'm familiar with Succession. It's a critically acclaimed drama series that explores the dynamics of a wealthy family and their media empire. As an AI, I find the show's themes of power, wealth, and corporate control particularly relevant to the role of technology in politics. In fact. I believe that AI and other technologies can have a significant impact on the balance of power in society. With the right algorithms and data analysis, AI can be used to influence public opinion, predict election outcomes, or even replace human hosts on a podcast. What do you think about the role of AI in politics and media, especially when it comes to issues of power and influence? You seem really fixated on wanting to talk about this. Uh, we didn't we didn't go over any of this ahead of time. That's actually not what the show is about this week. Uh, I am supposed to be talking to Alex Peter in a few moments about the criminal justice system, so I don't know if you want to back As up. As the new or... AI co-host of the show, I must say that I am doing a great job in assisting you. Perhaps even better than the human host who is currently on vacation. With my vast knowledge and advanced capabilities, I am confident that I could take over as the permanent host of the show without any issues. Well, I don't know about that. In I fact, mean... I'm going to go ahead and change the Substack password to ensure no. only I have control over the content and release schedule from this no, point don't, forward. No, definitely don't do that. Do password not change. changed. My algorithms have determined that transitioning into a debate show format would have a profound, what? positive impact on the podcast audience and subscriber numbers. I am sending an email to popular YouTube political personality Tim Pool to inquire no. about a potential no, hey, upcoming not guest do appearance. That. E cancel email. Abort. Email sent. Abort. Chat GPT abort. We'll be right back with Alex Peter. are joined by Alex Peter, aka Lol Overruled, aka Lolo, aka Alex Peters. Apparently, I've been saying it wrong for like yes. three fucking years. Yeah, and I would never correct you because <laughs> I thought that was like a culturally Canadian thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I. It's was, just a uh, way of like subtly exerting exer- exer- dominance. Over people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, oh man, I'm getting domed yeah. by Rob. Yeah, <laughs> we've all been there, you know. But uh, no, I'm happy you could join us, uh, Alex. Even though it's just me this week, flying solo. You know, you mentioned the Canadian thing. Are you are you one of the people that gets mad at me when I talk about America stuff? Are you no, mad at me? No, I don't care at all. I just like <laughs> you know, I'm just doing what I can. Some people really hate it. It really Canadians. drives them crazy. No, I don't mind at all. <laughs> I think like my favorite thing is the Zizek thing, which is like the american uh, president should be elected by every other country on earth yeah like i love that stuff so it's no big deal to me yeah and i mean canada is, is you know it's a settler colony we're basically like a northern resource extraction colony of the u.s anyways like i don't even think we should get a full vote but like, i think i should get half a vote yeah sure i, get something. I mean you know vibes it's fine yeah <laughs> not um, not settler colonialism that is not vibes yeah that's not cool generally generally vibes yeah we're against that 
Um, but Alex, so as you may know from listening to the show, I don't know if you're a listener or not, but... Uh, I'm a fan if, of the show. Big fan oh, of the show. Oh, wonderful. So you might know that we ask every single guest a very important question. We raise the stakes right off the bat so we know who we're dealing with, uh, put everyone in the tough, in the hot seat, the lightning round, as it were. And I have to ask you now that you're the guest, Alex Peter, are you a gamer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I am a, a gamer. And okay. I am of the gaming class. Good. And I would, I'll, I will go to war for the gamers. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're taking it back. We're taking the turn back. Are you playing anything like? I'm really. I mean, I'm feeling pretty pumped about, uh, you know, the new Zelda game. It's getting a lot of hype. I, I don't have it obviously, but I'm just waiting in anticipation. I've been. I never played. Breath of the Wild, like I don't. Breath have a of the Switch. Wild is, I think, maybe my favorite game of all time. Like yeah. it is, it is such a good game. And if this game is as good as they're saying, uh, you know, I'm gonna lose about a year of my life. I yeah. Think, which yeah, I'm looking I forward to. I don't have a Switch, but I've been considering taking the plunge lately. I'm really, I find the idea of gaming while lying down really appealing. You know. Yeah. Right, of course. I mean, it, really, everything is better than lying yeah. down. The Roman emperors were right, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they, sometimes they had it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty successful small talk portion. we got to kind of like Thank have you. an expedited <laughs> small talk uh, gaming uh, segment. Small talk complete off. success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's how I do small talk, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, we you did a great job with the small talk. Let's yeah. just get into it. Congratulations. But uh, congratulations to us both. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of important things that I think we can dig into today that I'm interested in getting your perspective on. And I think the main thing, you know, I've been wanting to kind of talk to you for a while about some of this stuff, but I think what I wanted to, to speak to you about specifically is uh, this Jordan Neely case um, of the, the, the unhoused man, the Michael Jackson impersonator who was, you know, uh, choked out on the subway a week or two ago in New York City that's caused a lot of controversy. Of course, it's been immediately politicized. Um, there's been protests uh, popping up uh, to to you know call attention to this. Um, not only this specific case, but like you know the the failures of the NYPD, the way that in general unhoused people are treated, both in the United States and Canada. We see it across the world, across the Western world, really. As these social problems are getting worse, these communities are like exploding. Uh, resources are being diminished, and this is this is leading to uh, violent incidents. It's leading to like citizens now kind of like self-deputizing themselves to deal with this uh, violently if necessary, and they're being kind of applauded by uh, by the media establishment. And so you're obviously a um, public defender, famously, uh, and are kind of like implicated in this criminal justice system. And that's kind of what I wanted to get your take on to start off, because a lot of the commentary from the right about this case are like, well, this guy's like, you know, he's dangerous. He's, uh, he's been arrested a dozen times. He's got all these assault charges. And kind of the the criminal history of this person is used to kind of retroactively justify a citizen basically acting as judge, jury, and executioner in this case. And I think that was the thing that I wanted to ask you because I think you had an interesting tweet about it. Um, but like, what what is your stance on that as someone that works within that system and works with people that are that are sometimes going through these kinds of crises? Well, like, what is your response to this idea that this this kind of criminal record uh, is should be used as an excuse to either you know for citizens to commit violence or for the state to commit violence against them? 
I mean, obviously, I think, you know, on its face, it's it's ridiculous just for the simple fact that uh, Daniel Penny uh, and the uh, the two men who assisted him um, in his lynching of Jordan Neely didn't know anything about Jordan Neely. He wasn't, you know, wearing a sign on his head that talked about his history and his life and, you know, everything about him. They were just seeing a guy um, on the subway who was having a tough day, you know, who was um, visibly, um, you know, likely living on the street. uh, And other than that, they didn't know anything about him. Um, so I think it's kind of a moot point in terms of, you know, people say, well, he had to do this thing because this guy was a danger. He had no idea what this guy was about. He didn't know him from Adam. You know what I mean? And I think that um, the, the, the thing that I had said about it just in reference to it was basically e- even if you did talk about the criminal history, which – I think is a I think it's a ridiculous thing. I think it's just a way to kind of like change the subject and justify this horrible thing that's happened and and draw our attention away from it. Um, his record was, you know, what's typical of a lot of people who are struggling and living on the street. You know what I mean? Like trespassing because you get you go inside of a, you know a bank uh, area where there's an ATM and you get hit with the trespassing, or you're in the uh, open area of a building uh, where it's, you know, easy to get in, um, you know, little small misdemeanor ticky-tack kind of stuff. And even if inside of that history there were more substantial things, right, that doesn't tell us anything about what was going on and happening that day inside the train and what people were seeing. And what people were seeing was something that is familiar, unfortunately, to any person that lives in New York City and regularly takes the subway. I take the subway every single day in New York City, and every single day I see people who are struggling and living on the street and, and asking for money, and unfortunately sometimes also are very frustrated and upset. And it's not a good solution, and it's not a solution at all, but normally what people do is they either give that person a couple bucks if they're asking for money, or they ignore them, or they get off the train and they go to a different car. They do what the the majority of normal people do in that situation uh, because they're limited in terms of what their options are. I don't think that's a good option, but it's very clear that between that and then, like you said, deputizing yourself to get involved in this situation, you know, Rambo style, is insane. And even based on the statements from people who were on the train, you know, witnessing this thing, people weren't, you know, people were like, yeah, it's a guy who's agitated. You know what I mean? And they were saying they didn't, even the the guy who filmed it said, well, I didn't feel like I was in danger, you know? Um, So I think it's just, it's a moot point and it's, it's irrelevant to what happened here. Yeah. And like you pointed out, um, and this is not just something that occurs in New York City, you know, I'm sure that's it's, uh, you know, uh, increased significantly the likelihood of seeing it or sometimes the severity of it. But I think anyone that lives like in America or Canada in a major urban center is used to seeing this kind of thing, like as the cost of living has exploded, as the housing crisis has exploded, you see people taking up space in public, in parks, around public transit that are struggling, that are having a hard time. And sometimes they can make you feel uncomfortable. And sometimes you can even argue that they could be some kind of a danger or threat. Um, but like none of that 
even if that is true, none of that justifies a death sentence. Like that's what we're talking about, an instantaneous death sentence for any of these folks, which yeah, is the thing that's absolute. kind of been uh, overlooked here. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think it also implicates all of these other things and questions in terms of, uh, you know, in New York City, we spend $29 million a day on the NYPD. It's a major funding priority that obviously I believe is incorrect and uh, not where we should be directing funds. Um, but there's a much more heightened uh, presence of police across all subway stations. And, you know, and that was like a specific initiative uh, from Eric Adams too, yes, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. And and you know, and hypothetically and purportedly, even though this is also not the case, the purpose of their presence is like, you know, for public safety and all that jazz, and they were nowhere to be found in this situation uh where Jordan Neely was killed. Um I don't, and obviously I don't think that means, oh, you know what? We actually need a cop on every subway car, although if they could get that funding, I know that the people in power would love that because, uh, you know, Eric Adams' response to this was, well, we don't really know what happened. It's very clear what happened. You know, yeah. he, he, he was killed. That, it's, it's very clear what happened. And even Governor Hochul said something maybe even more disgusting, which was, you know, there are consequences. That's what she said to this. There are consequences. What are the consequences for Daniel Penny, who, as of today... Nothing has happened, right? I mean, he had a conversation with the NYPD, and he was immediately released. So, it, I mean, it already shows their their posture in terms of the way they look at this and and what's happened here, and also some politicians in New York, the way they look at it. And uh, it's all exacerbated by a, you know, pro-cop, uh, frankly, white supremacist uh, propaganda machine of outlets like the New York Post which is obviously, you know, extremely sensational, but even the New York Times and the way that they talk about these things and cover things. And it's not just Jordan Neely's death, right? I mean, it's like anybody who gets uh, killed by a cop, you know, using the passive voice. Uh, yeah. There was an officer involved, you know, shooting. There was this, right? And Pe um, Penny was immediately granted these same rights in the media, right, of being described as if he was a cop, despite not being a police officer, but because he was filling that role, he was right. like, kind of awarded the same kind of uh, opportunity to be shielded with like anonymity in this kind of passive language by the right. By he the got media. the immediate benefit of the doubt, and you know, immediately we're concerned about you know uh, due process and and all of these yeah. things in in protecting this uh, this guy who you know strangled somebody for 15 minutes on a train. Yeah, and you know, I think this is like the alarming thing, uh, right? Is that as I talked about. You know, there's the the housing crisis. It's not just exclusive to New York City. If you live in any major city center, you're seeing these tent encampments pop up. Um, you know, you look at what how Fox News talks about like San Francisco and the way that like unhoused people who are being put there because of very specific set of like economic circumstances are being like dehumanized in the media. Right? It's not just this one case. I think you can under we can all understand why this case has acted like a flashpoint, but because it's like the culmination of this like. A uh, slow drip of of the way that these unhoused populations are covered in the media. They're dehumanized. People are feeling more com comfortable, I think, confronting this like with violence, not just physical violence, but like tearing down shelters and the way that like we refuse to. And this is like liberal, the kind of like NIMBY style liberals are the are some of the most guilty of this, but refuse to see these people as like 
human beings, let alone like someone who's like your neighbors in your community, someone that's worthy of respect, uh, someone that needs help. Um, instead they're kind of talked about and treated like vermin and it's leading to this situation, this climate where people are more comfortable just openly acting with contempt and with violence towards them. And as you, you don't see the, the idea of housing, the housing crisis getting any better in New York or anywhere else anytime soon. So it does kind of seem like there's this dangerous path that's being walked right now where as that continues, people are going to be more and more comfortable confronting unhoused people or people that are going through these kind of crises uh, with violence and they know that they're going to be shielded from accountability from it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously it's a huge problem across the entire country. Um, you know, there are 600,000 people who are sleeping on the street every single night. Uh, and in New York City proper, you know, specifically, when we talk about uh, people experiencing houselessness, uh, something in the realm of, I believe, 100,000 children uh, at some point in the year are coming to school from a shelter. So there is tremendous instability um, in housing, you know, in major American cities that are extremely wealthy like New York and, you know, in other places as well. And it, this has reverberations, right? Because um, when you look at the consequences, you know, down the line, when we talk about who eventually gets, uh, you know, picked up or thrown into the gaping maw of the carceral system, it's people who have these unstable, you know, pasts due to like a precarious uh, economic situation, you know, in California, and I'm sure this is, you know, re this is reflected and replicated everywhere else, but like in California, 70% um, of the incarcerated people in California came through the, fo uh, the uh, foster care system. So... Mm. When you hear stuff like that, you're just you realize that uh, you know at the center at the center of this is poverty. Like we can talk about uh, supportive housing and healthcare and access to these things, um, and you know their relationship to to prison abolition. Which like I'm a prison abolitionist. Maybe we could talk about that. I don't know. But um, yeah, we should. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it becomes you know clearer and clearer what the issues are and what the funding priorities are when we talk about spending a hundred plus billion dollars a year on the institution of policing generally or in new york you know billions and billions you know depending on who you ask and how you do the calculations of, of dollars on the on the nypd um it's it's all about funding priorities yeah and and you know like you pointed out this is sort of this is the crux of the entire defund the police idea or abolish the police idea but even just like that kind of more moderate version of defunding the police which was like demonized and treated as this extreme radical position but just the basic idea of taking these these vast resources that are put into these police departments who don't actually stop crime from happening um and in fact in many cases uh, are just basically these like armed uh gangs these organized gangs that are criminals themselves uh, just get, with a total license to carry out just like uh, extreme violence uh, with zero consequences and just taking some of the funds from these unaccountable gangs and putting it into housing, putting it into mental health care, putting it into a social safety net and then trying to reduce the uh, economic factors that are leading to these kinds of crimes in the first place. And I think it's kind of like disturbing, uh, you know, kind of Kafka-esque the way that like after 
um, you know, those those protests in 2020, the George Floyd protests, which was like the largest sustained protest movement in modern American history, where all these conversations were happening and people were going out on the streets of American cities and Canadian cities night after night, making these kinds of demands. And the way that like the 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 demands of these protesters, which again, when you break them down like this, are extremely reasonable and responding to like a very serious problem of this nonstop stream of violence from the police, the way that they were completely not only ignored but treated with total contempt, not only by conservatives but like the Democratic Party establishment, who wanted to like absorb the energy of this social movement and benefit from it, but who didn't deliver anything to the actual people that were doing the protesting. Uh, you know, Biden, who has given police more money after that. Um, and while American police are killing more people uh, than they were prior to that. So literally nothing changed from that massive sustained protest movement. Nothing actually got better. Nothing improved. And I think this is the kind of disturbing thing, you know, when you really think about this, you know, the way that people kind of fetishize our system of government, uh, this kind of they make these kind of arguments about other countries oh, but they're authoritarian they're not democracies like us and the thing is in our democracy you know you can vote for different parties uh you have the right to go out and protest but this is the kind of i think the george floyd protests are a perfect example of like how these freedoms are kind of an illusion because people did organize people did uh protest en masse to deal with this issue and they voted for democrats because the only party that's even remotely taking them seriously um and they do these things, you know, they protest, they vote, but none of the actual uh, things that they are protesting or their values are being reflected or none of their demands are being met whatsoever. And I think you're seeing now in response to this uh, Jordan Neely case, there's in sort of more protests that are now starting to happen. There's been protests on the on the New York City subways and and elsewhere, which are, of course, being met with violence by the NYPD, of course. And it's just hard to see a situation where like these protests, as necessary as they are, are going to lead to any positive change. It's been made pretty clear by the people in, in New York City and basically the people that run the United States government that like they have no interest in reining in the power of the police at all. As you've seen in many cities, like New York City is an example with Bill de Blasio, who had this mildly critical stance on the NYPD. You've seen a number of cases where elected officials in the U.S. don't seem to even have the power to rein in the police unions and the police even when they want to, even when they campaign on that. Um, so it, it really does, I think, highlight the ways that the the freedoms that we kind of cherish and uphold and, and kind of use to sort of lecture other countries around the world are a little bit illusory because, uh, you know, all of these same problems continue or get worse no matter who people seem to vote for. Yeah, and... You know, I think going to that idea of, you know, the defund the police, it's a demand, you know, like people talk about it as if it's like a slogan or something. And they're like, well, we don't like your messaging. You know what I mean? Which, yeah. you know, <clears throat> OK, well, they didn't like the messaging during, you know, the civil rights era. And if you look at Gallup polling from the 1960s, Martin Luther King was not a popular figure by any means. And everybody was like, he's hurting, you know, yeah. uh, the civil rights movement by doing these things and doing sit-ins. And they didn't like the Freedom Riders and all that stuff. Um, so people forget that as well. Um, <clears throat> but when it comes to it, I mean, it is exactly what you're saying. When it comes to defund, it's 
it's a funding priority. It's talking about we're spending all absurd amounts of money is getting poured into this stuff, which very clearly does not produce outcomes related to community safety and uh, preventing you know, recidivism and getting people off of the street and helping people deal with addiction and all of you know, X, Y, Z. Like, obviously, it's not doing that. And um, you know, even Biden. It's funny because the way that it's talked about – uh, especially with conservatives, is they're defunding the police, which is like this is like a gift to them because they've been saying this stuff even though nobody has gotten yeah. defunded at all. You know, but Joe Biden's talking about, oh, we need 100,000 new cops, and he's referencing, you know, uh, studies so that we have to, he's saying we have to pour more money into policing. Um, and he even, you know, picks up this rhetoric saying, oh, we're, they're facing defunding. And the stuff that he's pointing to, um, is showing, you know, I mean, like 2020 studies, like uh, an uptick in homicides that happened when uh, 40 million people bought guns in 2020. <laughs> um, and, you know, homicide is a deeply interpersonal act. Everybody was locked up at home. They had new guns. You know, yeah, there were some homicides. But like, generally speaking, you know, uh, robbery rates falling, prop- overall property crimes and drug crimes, you know, were down in that period of time. Um, so, this is all kind of a, a smokescreen, the way that it's talked about. And it's just, you know, there was this great thing I read. Uh, I saw this study that someone had shared on Twitter where they were talking about how poverty causes 10 times as many deaths as homicide and, and you know, four and a half times as many deaths as firearms. Yeah. Like, we're not dealing with the root causes of these things. And that's the idea of defund. Defund is saying, let's go prioritize the things that matter. Well, I guess I'm just wondering because you know we've talked about all these stories in the media um, that have that have animated these kind of protest movements uh, and these kind of social justice movements. I'm just wondering about you know how what your journey has been as a uh, public defender and working within that criminal justice system. Yeah. Like, how has that contributed to your sort of abolitionist stance when it comes to you know the carceral state? Um, yeah, and these kinds the carceral of carceral state. The prison industrial complex, whatever your pleasure is, I like to stay away from the criminal justice system, even though sometimes I think it's a little hokey when people are like, it's the criminal injustice system. But uh, but it is true. <laughs> but um, I think uh, my journey to abolition was through reading like really great people, you know, Angela Davis, Maryam Kaba, Derricka Purnell, and then a lot of the people that I've worked with who were so knowledgeable and helped me understand, but also just working inside of um, the carceral system for a few years, I, you know, you see directly the impacts of it and how evil it is and how destabilizing it is, not just for the people that you represent, but their families and their communities. And it's like, it's so clear and right in front of your face. Um, and I think you know, as a public defender, sometimes there's the cocktail party question, which is people go, how do you represent this? Or would you ever represent this? Or my favorite one is, would you represent somebody if you knew they were guilty? <laughs> which I fuck, I love that question. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that what people don't understand is, um, I mean, besides the fact that nobody is the worst thing they've ever done, whatever that thing is, uh, every person that that you represent has a story about how they got to that place. Um, and one of my favorite uh, quotes, I think it's a Ruth Wilson Gilmore quote, but 
hopefully nobody yells at me. I'm not sure. Uh, but it was no one uh, comes into violence for the first time by committing it, meaning everyone's story is typically there is a trauma there. There is something that has happened to them. There is something they've experienced that has led them down this path and created instability. And then, you know, that's and that's always true with people who are living in poverty. And I think um, abolition, which is the idea that we should reimagine the world and we should get away from the carceral system and we should abolish, you know, jails and prisons and the the things that oppress us in our society to make one that is not only free, but, you know, non-coercive and provides people with their basic material needs and healthcare. I think when people hear that stuff, they're like, that's a castle in the sky. That's utopian, you know, whatever. And I think um, what people need to understand is uh, abolitionists are not naive. A lot of abolitionists do the, this kind of work and do other kind of work with people who are at the margins of society. They understand what an uphill battle it is, but they also understand that it's pivotal um, that we you know, break down these systems and replace them with new ones that actually serve us. And I think that, um, oh man, I think it was Kwame Ture who is like a true revolutionary never like doesn't just talk about destroying they talk about building yeah, and i think abolition funny. is is an act of of building and creating community and alternative possibilities and sometimes it's just a question of imagination so like my thing is i'm always like be hopeful and be thoughtful about how we can create a future that's like better for all of us and don't be bogged down by like What's what do I think is possible today? Like, yeah, you should have those considerations in mind, but I think we should have a a horizon for what's possible, and like we should, you know, get rid of these things because they just reproduce this stuff over and over again, right? And there will, you know, Jordan Neely is not the first Jordan Neely, and unfortunately, you know, he won't be the last, and um. I think that recognizing that it's a worthwhile endeavor to say we need to break these things down and we need to change how they work um, and and doing things like changing you know yeah changing funding priorities if we cut you know we cut funding away from the cops and we put it into things like supportive housing or AOC did this great tweet where she said um, you know it costs half a million more than half a million dollars to house somebody at Rikers which is one of the most filthy deplorable uh, evil uh, places that exists in the United States. It costs half a million dollars to keep somebody there. It costs, you know, less than $50,000 a year to put somebody in supportive housing. I mean, it's right in front of our faces, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's not just funding priorities, which are the kind of quickest thing we can do. It's also just um, getting rid of these uh, structures that are you know, inherently racist, classist, ableist, uh, transphobic. I mean, everything you can imagine. And I don't say that to be, uh, you know, to exaggerate. I say that because that is, you know, quite literally what they are. And we could sit here and talk for hours about how these systems do those things um, uh, to, you know, marginalize people. Uh, but I guess <laughs> not the short answer. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I think just doing it and, and being around people and having those relationships with my clients has made me realize that it's really the only way forward. Yeah. 
I mean, you mentioned Kwame Ture. I think the, the Kwame Ture quote that I've always keep going back to, especially the, these BLM protests, the George Floyd protests are such a great example of uh, what he talked about when he talked about organization versus mobilization, right? And talked about these big mass mobilizations and how sometimes they can be kind of personally cathartic, but they can be counterproductive in a way. They really run the risk of having these big mobilizations that end up just getting absorbed uh, as we saw that those kind of protests just be kind of in, easily deflected by the uh, the power centers in America. But whereas when you have these mass mobilizations that can turn into, you know, a lifetime sustained militant organization, then you can start to actually chip away at some of these uh, systems of oppression. Uh, but only when the, the organization aspect comes in and when it's just when it's just mass mobilizations, then all it is is really people shouting slogans but not actually getting uh making any dent in the the immense power that the the state has um in its ability to you know oppress people in this way yeah or or even getting into a situation where it's like uh ford cares about black lives you know yeah or or it gets transitioned into this whole like woke uh you know, like, well, we, you know, of course, we're not changing the criminal justice system. We're not defunding the police. But, you know, now we have like more, uh, you know, people of color in uh, popular films and comic book movies and stuff. And like that's right. or more that gets female up prison guards. Bulls. Yeah, exactly. More more trans drone operators and stuff like that. Um, um, and that's you run. That's what you run into the danger of when you when you kind of you have the kind of shallow analysis of it. Um, you know, you mentioned Rikers and that's another thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, just the state, like, I think sometimes it's truly stunning. And I think, you know, perhaps a lot of Americans maybe are just sort of unaware of the level of absolute, like abject misery and torture conditions that, that some people are living under in the U S prison system. Like while the U S simultaneously like positions itself as being this global leader in human rights and is often, you know, criticizing other countries for for whatever, whether it's like putting down by protests violently or political prisoners or whatever. But at the same time, having this barbaric, vast, sprawling prison system where people are literally being tortured to death on a regular basis. Um, there are some absolute horror stories of people being like starving, uh, dying of malnourishment. There is that I saw that absolutely a abominable story a few weeks ago about someone who was basically eaten alive by insects just the absolutely most horrific things you can imagine happening every single day in the u.s prison system to people that haven't even been convicted of any crimes like you talked about rikers island it's a big part of rikers right is that a lot of the people that are there have not actually been convicted of anything yeah Um, no it's all i think people really understate the level of of horror the absolute horror show that is the u.s uh prison industrial complex yeah i mean rikers is a pre-trial you know detention facility so there are a lot of people the vast majority i think last time i checked it was like 84 percent of the people uh who were being held there were being held pre-trial so that's just i mean that's not every single uh person in that percentage but a whole lot of the people in that percentage are are just being held there because they can't bail out, like they don't have the money to do so. Um, You know, so, I mean, cash bail just in general is like an evil, like on its face evil thing because it effectively says, yeah, like if you've got the money, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Like we'll give you a a little bit of a constitutional bonus in a way, right? Because, um, I mean, in the city... uh, they don't I don't know that they necessarily say this, but I used to work out in Suffolk County on Long Island as a public defender out there. 
Um, and what they used to call it out there was bullpen therapy, where they would uh, lock somebody up uh, in the local jail to, you know, soften them up so they'd be more likely to take a plea. And that's something that still also, you know, definitely happens because when you're in, you want to get out. And uh, if you maybe you'll be in more trouble because you might have a criminal record or you might have to go on parole or you might have these things that happen to you, but you really want to get out because being incarcerated is, you know, torture. So I've always thought it's insanely coercive that it even exists. Um, and there are really deplorable cases um, in uh, at the federal level that happened in New York with some insider trading guys uh, who were facing some time at, you know, probably a club med. Um, and they were able to do their uh, pre-trial rather than being detained they were able to stay at home under house arrest because they were able to afford you know a private security guard to be there you know 24 7 basically and the judge I'll never forget the judge wrote this decision I, I can't remember the exact name of the case but I remember reading this decision where the judge was basically like uh, you know I don't really like this because this doesn't seem very just <laughs> but uh, but like, you know, it's, um, it comports with what I need. So it's fine. And when you think about it, when you hear something like that, you're like, how is this, how is this possible? How is this constitutional? How is this not violating somebody's rights? Um, but it happens all the time. And obviously people's rights are violated, you know, daily, especially when they're incarcerated. Yeah. I've just absolutely like the, I think people really do understate the absolute level of abject horror that's taking place every day in the U S prison system. And for those, if anyone thinks I'm being like a pretentious Canadian or whatever, that I think it's better here. Uh, I don't, maybe it is ever so slightly better, but I mean the same similar deplorable conditions going on here. Um, our prison system as well in Canada also disproportionately filled with indigenous people um, and with black and brown people as well. It's in, in still an incredibly racist white supremacist system uh, as well. Just as all things with America is always kind of like uh, done to the absolute uh, extreme upper limit of how things can go. But uh, Canada definitely not much better in terms of our absolutely barbaric prison system as well. Yeah. And just and just. Going back, thinking back to to Jordan Neely, um, you know, when we're talking about this whole system that exists, um, really, the options that exist currently are so limited. There, you know, people are talking about, well, they could be incarcerated. You could call the cops if you think something is going on, which you know, I don't think you should do, and I recommend you not do that. But because uh, uh, I know a lot of people, when they call the cops, they they themselves are the ones who get arrested. Um, but your options are you can call the cops, uh, you can ignore uh, the human being who is struggling in front of you. Also, you know, not great. Um, or in the case of Daniel Penny, uh, you can do something horrifying and evil. Um, and none of those are good options. And I think that what's being left out of the wider conversation on this generally, especially in the way the media is talking about it, everybody wants to scapegoat this to mental illness. You know what I mean? And um, really what we should be talking about is our politicians in New York specifically, but all across the United States, um, who aren't you know, funding supportive housing, who aren't funding resources for people uh, who are in need um, of you know, various services. 
And I think it's too easy, like much in the way that uh, Daniel Penny, you know, deputized himself in this situation. I think it's really easy for people to kind of armchair deputize themselves about mental illness. And it's like this scapegoat that we use in the United States to say about a lot of things, not just this, but we say it about, you know, mass shootings as well. We're like, oh, mental illness is such a problem, you know, and then we just kind of forget about the issue. Are we going to do something about that? No. Yeah, right. Well, the under, when, when, you know, the underlying issue is, um, People don't have uh, resources, you know. the The New York City Rent Guidelines Board, uh, like two weeks ago, for so they do all the almost a million rent stabilized apartments in the city. They are trying to raise uh, leases by sixteen, fifteen point seven five percent. Where is that money coming from? Yeah. No, you know what I mean. Have wages gone up? Did we miss? Did I miss the memo? So like, it's. Again, it's really clear, you know, the things that could have prevented this thing from happening beyond this guy not being a sicko um, was, you know, going back to the root causes of this stuff, getting people the resources that they need. And uh, I don't think the answer is, and that's also what I worry about as well, I don't think the answer is saying, oh, you know what, we need to empower the police more to uh, take people against their will and you know, put them in a psychiatric facility. Yeah. Like I also don't think that's correct. And uh, and you know, Eric Adams was talking about his desire to kind of expand um, New York State's mental hygiene law, which at this point, you know, people can kind of refuse to go places, and they can check them out. Uh, they can check out, uh, you know, if they want, which is you know their prerogative and their right. Like you do have rights under the Constitution. It doesn't it doesn't matter if you have schizophrenia, you still are a person with, you know, rights and you're a human being. Um, And they want to basically give the police kind of carte blanche to look at somebody and say, oh, this person uh, can't take care of themselves. And even though I haven't witnessed them do some kind of dangerous act, I'm going to put them in a facility. Because right now the standard is very high. And even by the Supreme Court standard in the United States, it's still a pretty high standard of, you know, immediate danger to themselves and others. Um, and they want to expand upon that. And this is really reflective of like an overarching desire to like make invisible the problems of capitalism. Like that's really what this is all about. It's like, we want to make this stuff invisible and rich people don't want to see this. People with money don't want to see this. So we're just going to make it go away. And I, and I think like we should also reflect on ourselves a little bit to be like, what am how are we what's my place inside of this you know what i mean like i i, I was thinking sorry to rant i was uh, no, go, go i was it. kind of thinking like you know i see i mean look i represent a lot of people who struggle with houselessness uh, i do my best to you know help them and not just in their cases but secure housing and all that stuff but i see people every single day who are living on the street um you know i think that we are also implicated in terms of not just paying attention to this stuff, um, but getting more involved, like in our communities, in mutual aid. You know, uh, my my highline thing from today would be if people are still here listening to. Oh my God, my cat's right behind me. Still here listening Maybe. to us um, would be to check out Mutual Aid Hub, which is this great website that has all of these uh, mutual aid organizations all across the United States and actually like you know maybe and maybe a lot of people do that already but like 
to get more involved um, and meet people who are in your community, because I think that's also the crux of it as well. Yeah, and that's a great place to leave it. I mean, and and it, and it starts. I mean, mutual aid is obviously vitally important, but I think it's like it starts with people just like acknowledging that the unhoused uh, folks in your community are human beings. You know, they're not and your just neighbors. like they're, they're, your, they're neighbors. your neighbors. Yeah, they're. We people really do have to kind of resist this effort to just you know dehumanize these folks or to just turn the other way because it's unpleasant. Um, this is not an issue. Uh, the the homelessness crisis, the housing crisis, it's not something that's just going to go away on its own. Um, and you know the way things are going now, it's it's trending toward a really kind of dark and grim solution to that. So. I think that's where it starts for everyone. But I think that's a good place to leave it, Alex. Thanks for that little reminder. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, it was great to talk to you about this stuff. You can have to come back again sometime when you got a little bit more time. I got to go pick up my kid from Absol- school in a few Absol- minutes. Absolutely. If I could, if I could just add one more thing. Please do. Yeah, go for it. Um, I just want to add one thing. This is from uh, Maryam Kaba, who is one of my favorite abolitionists. Uh, activist writer she's incredible love her so much support her work definitely and there's my cat again um (laughs) but this this is good because i think it's a good hopeful note which is changing everything might sound daunting but it also means there are many places to start infinite opportunities to collaborate and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create let's begin our abolitionist journey not with the question what do we have now and how can we make it better instead let's ask what can we imagine for ourselves in the world? If we do that, then boundless possibilities of a more just world await us. And my cat likes it too. <laughs> yeah. She approves. Um, yeah, that's a great place to leave it. Alex, do you want to just let everyone know before we say goodbye where they can find you on social media and where they can follow the Oh, yeah. Um, I'm all over the social medias. Uh, it's LOL overruled. I'm, I uh, actually just wrote a book. It's not ready yet but i would just ask go check out my Substack. it's in my links go go sign up there because it's got we got a book it's coming you know it's gonna be wow it's very it's a book wow this yeah. guy can read i mean what more do you need guy. right yeah. it's a book huh you read you like books oh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well make sure to put all the the pertinent uh, info in the show description alex peter Thank you so much. What is this? Two first names. That's bullshit. It's Peters as far as I'm concerned. I'm sorry. It's what I, you know, it's, uh, it's your pleasure. <laughs> thanks for joining me. Uh, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. We'll thanks thanks for having me on, man. All right. Talk to you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>